Let's pray. Father God, you're amazing. Your sacrifice for us is all that we need to be right with God, and it's such an amazing thing. We thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that you are the giver of light, that you were the giver of light from the very beginning, and you're the giver of light now. We pray that that light would shine into our hearts and that we would understand more of what you want from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May be seated. Good morning. We're going to be studying from John, 1 John 1 and 2 this morning, so you can kind of turn there, be ready to read that in just a little bit. Uh, the title of this sermon is Walking in the Light, and I was think, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about what the world says um, gives us light or happiness. That's kind of what uh, the world would think of walking in the light, I think, is being happy. So I studied, or I mean, I, I googled some things, and I found this article that is very indicative of many of uh, what they say, the ways to be happy. This is called How to Be Happy Again, Finding New Ways to Be Happy by Candace McDowell. She says, truthfully, you're happy is whatever it means to you. Of course, not everyone will agree, but that's to be expected because no two people are alike. Before you embark on your happiness journey, it's helpful to list what makes you happy and what doesn't. Here are some suggestions to make you happy. Find a new hobby. Put yourself first. Exercise, that's a good idea. Eat a balanced diet, not bad either. And choose your company wisely. But she says, but realize that it all starts with you. If there is something in your life that isn't bringing you happiness, you have to let it go. That can be relationships in any magnitude, family, friendships, a spouse, a partner. It will be difficult, but it's worth your peace of mind, isn't it? Now let's see as we go along this morning how that contrasts with what God says should make us joyful. Now we're going to end up at, in this uh, about joy, which is we'll see very much different than happiness. So this is the formula that she is uh, in espousing, and I'm afraid this is the formula that many, many people in the world think will make them happy. Our text this morning is from 1 John, and it's written by, of course, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' close disciples who walked with him, who learned from him, who was with him for a few years. But John is writing this when he's probably about 90 years old. He is, at this point, the only remaining apostle He's the only one that wasn't actually martyred. They tried to martyr him, but they couldn't. They put him in a, a, a vat of boiling oil, and it didn't kill him. But he survived to live a very long life, the only apostle to do that. So he's writing from a, a vast experience. Not only can he say that he learned from Jesus personally, but he also walked with Jesus for 60-plus years spiritually after Jesus rose from the dead. So listen to what John says. He's uniquely qualified to speak to us. And before we read from 1 John, I want to read from his gospel, the first few verses of the gospel of John, because you'll see how, how they kind of uh, start the same way. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made Without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that light, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some translations say the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations say the darkness can never extinguish it. Notice the phrases here that John uses. Jesus was from the beginning, it says. It says Jesus made all things. And it also says he is the source of light. So now as we read 1 John 1, let's look at the similarities here. 1 John 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That's all I'm going to read from that from First John, but we're going to reference First John two quite a bit also. Pray with me, Father God. We just thank you for the reading of your word. Just pray that it would speak to our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let me summarize those first ten verses that I just read in this way: Jesus was from the beginning as the Creator, and He is now the light that reveals our sins but also the means of cleansing those revealed sins. See, John makes it clear that you need to begin any theology or any building, for that matter, with a sure foundation, a, a foundation that is strong. And that foundation, he says, is that Jesus is the creator. Notice how he says that in both of his uh, letters here, John and 1 John. He starts out by saying, well, I want to make it clear, Jesus was a man, but he was also the creator. Our text says that God is light. It says that he is light. He is not the light or a light. He just is light. Our text also says uh, that he was from the beginning. And what happened in the beginning? Well, Genesis 1.1 tells us what happened in the beginning. It reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we know from Genesis 1 that the earth, it says, was a, a formless, empty, dark blob, and God spoke over it. And he's, what, are, what are the first words that were recorded that, that God spoke? He said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, notice that God did not say, let there be the sun, and there was light. He just said, let there be light, and there was light. So he created the light, the beams of light. 
and the light before he created the sources, what we would call the sources of light, the sun, moon, and the stars. It wasn't until day four that he created those. So takeaway number one is that God can bring light into your life no matter how hopeless, how dark, how empty, how messy your life is. The second takeaway is this. Without the foundation of creation by God, as stated in Genesis, your life and your love for the Bible will crumble. Let me explain, because this is super important. God told us how creation happened, but so many today want to reject what he said. It couldn't be that simple. We have to figure out a scientific way that it might have happened. So we're bombarded with the idea that the earth is billions of years old. And because of that fact, no thinking person would believe that creation happened like Genesis 1 says. The problem is that it's not fact. Evolution as the origin of man is based on many, many assumptions and huge leaps of faith. I'm reading a book right now that is written by 50 scientists who said that they now believe, after studying various uh, fields of science for many years, that creation happened in six literal days, just like the Bible said. They all came to that re realization after being taught in the universities that evolution happened, and they had to figure it out from themselves, but by their research, they've come to believe that the Bible is right, that uh, creation happened in six days. So why is evolution important to so many people? Let me show you the motive behind the theory of evolution, plain and simple. And this is from George Wald. He's a professor of, professor of biochemical science at Harvard and a teacher of evolutionary theory. I say he is. He actually has passed away in 97, but he wrote this um, while he was a professor there. He said, there are only two possible explanations for how life arose. Spontaneous generation arising uh, to evolution or supernatural creative act of God. There is no other possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others, but that just leaves us with only one other possibility, that life came as a supernatural act of creation by God, but I can't accept that possibility because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation leading to evolution. So plain and simple, there you have it. Ignoring the fact that there's a creator means I can live however I want because I'm autonomous. I'm my, I can govern my own lives. I'm a product of chance, so life has only the meaning that I give it. I'm also looking at a book that's written by Henry Morris on creation, on, on Genesis, actually. It's on the whole book of Genesis. Morris believes that the first 11 chapters in Genesis are truly as historical as the remaining 39. He, he came to this conclusion not based simply on faith, but on many years of study of the scientific aspects of Genesis records and of interchange with many other scientists, both evolutionists and creationists. Dr. Morris says that evolutionary teachings in college combined with years of lukewarm teaching in the church left him with many questions. And he soon became, when he, uh, when he exited the university, he became known as what is it called a theistic evolutionist. That means God-guided evolution. He began to think, 
that if Genesis was not historically trustworthy, trustworthy, then simple logic showed that neither was the rest of the Bible, including the testimony about Jesus. He said, I practically stopped reading the Bible altogether. But after many years of scientific study, he now says that the book of Genesis is probably the most important book ever written. See, theistic evolution kind of sounds good. You've got God, and then you've got evolution. You can kind of have, have both things together. Uh, it's called the gap theory, where some people believe that God created, but there was millions of years between each day in, in his creation. Um, the problem is that it's mixing God and worldly theology. Our text says, in God there is no darkness at all. Evolution is chance. Evolution is darkness. Plain and simple, it's a worldly desire to cut God out of the picture. Theistic evolution is as far off as evolution itself. I could go on and on about that, but we don't have time. So let's look at the facts regarding the origin of the world. First of all, we understand, and I believe, that the Bible is God's word, God's inspired word to us. The Bible is... Therefore, the only eyewitness account of what happened in the beginning. Did you ever think of it as an eyewitness account? God was there, and he inspired it to be written down for all of us. All of man's attempts at defining creation are purely guesses and always attempts to discredit God. Number two, we could answer the question, is the Bible a science book? Some laugh at that idea, but good science does support the Bible. Christians do not need to be afraid of good science. Let me give you an example. The book of Joshua chapter 10 says that during one of the battles, uh, the sun stood still for the day so Joshua could have a longer day to fight his battle and win it. It says that in the Bible. Well, we now know from science that this actually happened. From an article written in 2017, Cambridge researchers announced that they have pinpointed the date of the biblical account of Joshua stopping the sun which they claim is the day of the oldest eclipse ever recorded, October 30th, 1207 B.C. Don't ever be afraid of true science. You see, science is built on observable and reproducible facts. Evolution is neither observable nor reproducible, so it's not science at all, but rather it's assumptions and guesses. Darwin himself said that if the intermediate forms of life that he was proposing could not be found in the fossils, then his theory would completely break down. He wrote this in the 1800s, hoping, assuming, hoping, guessing, that continued research would find all of these fossils that he needed to be able to find. But they haven't. You see, if there was millions and millions of years, there would be lots of fossils, right? Lots and lots of fossils, not just a few here and there. But we don't find that. To show the darkness that some people choose to live in, Darwin said this, The mystery of the beginning of all things is insoluble, that means impossible to solve, by us. And I, for one, must be content to remain an agnostic. He doesn't doing it because of his science or supported by any facts, it's just because he wants to be an agnostic. So nothing about evolution is observable, and adherence to it is a selfish attempt to cut God out of the picture. To try to make evolution plausible, new theories need to be developed to account for the impossibility of the original theory. In 1940, scientist Goldsmith came up with the idea of the hopeful monsters, proposing that at some point in the evolutionary history, maybe a reptile egg hatched into a bird. 
or something like that. He calls it the hopeful monsters. They have to try to explain it somehow. But let's get back to the fact that God is light. When God created light, we naturally think of the light that we can see. But life-giving light goes way beyond that. It involves the ultraviolet, the infrared, the radiation, the things we can't see, and most importantly, energizing of the atoms, which include gravitational and nuclear forces. All of this was part of day one when God said, let there be light. So much of creation is interdependent. Have you ever thought about that? When we talk about evolution, they talk about, well, just how could this, you know, humans happen? Well, creation is so interdependent. Our ecosystem depends on all of the other things to operate properly. It operates as a unit. It's all the parts have to be there. It's interesting that people are now talking so much about global warming, about this one or two or whatever it is, one or two or three degrees that makes such a big difference. Those same people are, are often the proponents of evolution, not thinking about the fact that their very words are, are telling them that there had to be a creator who placed this earth exactly at the right place from the sun, right? I mean, within miles it had to be there or, it or we couldn't have life. We couldn't have these temperatures that we enjoy. Uh, even the cold ones. <laughs> Global warming, we're talking about it here. Um, anyway, it's interesting that they say, talk about one or two degrees, and they, they're just, in fact, proving the fact that there had to be a particular creator who placed this earth just at the right spot, right? Okay, God took six days to create everything. The plants, the animals, the fish, the heavenly bodies, the birds, the insects, the water, the dry land, man. All he created as a functioning system. In Genesis, the word for day is yom in Hebrew, and that always refers to a 24-hour period, never to a long period of time or some ambiguous period. It's always a day. Adam was created as a full-grown man. Did you think about that? Blood already flowing through his veins at the moment he was created. He had some age on him when he was created. Trees were created as full-grown trees with seeds ready to fall and, and propagate. God created everything fully functioning and with age. Therefore, the apparent age that might be calculated from the present processes would undoubtedly be vastly different from the true age as revealed by the creator. The laws of energy cons conservation imply that the universe did not start up by itself. The law of energy decay implies that the universe cannot last forever. God's word says all of this. So point number one is, the foundation to build on, Jesus was from the beginning, and he is the creator and the light giver. Point number two, let's explore what does it mean to walk in the light. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This one another that it's talking about there is really you and Jesus. In that light, there's no barriers, no hidden places to inhibit fellowship with Jesus. So what does it mean to walk in the light? Ben Sternke says this, Walking in the light has nothing to do with perfect behavior and everything to do with being known and that we have stopped hiding. Walking in the light isn't something you have to work up to because it isn't about becoming awesome at life. It's simply about letting reality be known. It's terrifying, but it's the only way to ever really find life. We find that the light we are walking in isn't harsh. 
It doesn't shame us. It doesn't make us sweat. Instead, it's a healing light that allows us to rest in the love of God. So let's talk about what it means to walk in the light for a minute. Uh, verse Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 talks about fellowship with Jesus. How do we find that mutual fellowship with Jesus? Well, he's given us his word, the Bible. We need to read it. That's how we find fellowship with him. Uh, Pastor Sean encouraged us at the beginning of this year to start a reading plan, to read the Bible through in a year. How are you doing? It's one month in. Let me give you a, a secret. It's not, it's not easy even for, for uh, church leaders, for me. For example, I'm usually uh, preparing for a Wednesday night or a sermon. I preach at Newtown about once a month um, or, you know, a small group or, or teaching Sunday school, always preparing for something. Sean and I confided in this the other day that, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's our Bible reading time. But no, we're both convicted of that, and we're going we're gonna to stick with reading the Bible through this year because it's important that we see the whole picture that God has for us. Oftentimes, if you just answer this question, is it easier to read the Bible on vacation or in your regular routine? I think a lot of people would say, vacation, you just forget about it. You don't do it. So it's not a time thing, people. It's not a time thing. It's a priority thing. I set my clock uh, 15 minutes earlier, got up at 5.45 this morning, so I had time to read my... I couldn't preach this sermon and not have read it this morning. That would have been wrong. So I actually listened to it on the, on the phone because I find that I can listen to it and actually concentrate better than reading. Um, so that's what I do. But folks, it's a priority thing. It's not a time thing. We need a, we need a systematic reading plan. And, and beware of these devotionals that have these feel-good verses for every day. I don't think that's uh, what we're supposed to be. I mean, it's okay to listen to those. They're not wrong. But that's not all you should be taking in if you're talking about fellowship with Jesus. Okay, that's number one. Walking in the light means fellowship with Jesus, reading his word, letting him speak to you through his word, and then you can speak back to him. Number two, obeying Jesus' commands. Chapter two, verse three. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's letting Jesus illuminate those scriptures that you're reading. Okay? The light will expose what you should and should not be doing. Seeing your unrepentant sins for what they are. They are a barrier between you and God. When Jesus' light exposes those sins, walking in the light means confessing. means admitting those sins and repenting, turning away from them. It says in uh, verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That, that word cleanses is a, in the perfect sense, meaning continually all the time cleansing, 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 because that's what we need. Who doesn't like to be clean, except for maybe a five-year-old boy? We all, all know about that probably. We like to be clean. His, his uh, blood continually cleanses us. Number three, point number three, is that we need to walk as Jesus did. It's, it's found in verse uh, six of chapter two. It says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Jesus is our standard for behavior. Imitating Jesus leads us to progress or walk toward holiness. Number four, love for your brothers and sisters. It was mentioned that we have a big family here. Yes, 
Think of it as a family. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are your family. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10 says, Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. So the family of God must get along. We must have a love for each other. Number five, we shouldn't love the world. And what does that mean? It means we reject the world's systems and philosophies. Uh, I mentioned earlier some of them, but uh, chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Unfortunately, your love for God does not make you exempt from sin. John makes it clear, but you should not enjoy sin. You should not dwell in sin. So walking in the light is walking with no hidden places before God. The light is exposing everything, not for the purpose of condemning, but for the purpose of cleansing, that continual cleansing. Walking in the light does not make light of sin. No, it's not like God saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's very bad, and it needs to be punished. Uh, chapter, one, chapter 2 Verses 1 and 2, Scott Miller read those verses for us this morning, uh, and it says, If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's an example for you just to think about it. It's not a perfect example, but let's say you were speeding down the road at 85 miles an hour and you're in a 45 zone, and you see the blue lights come on. The policeman stops you, and he says, you've committed a crime or a sin, okay? You have to go to court because you were going so fast. You have to go to court. So you're afraid. Your knees are knocking. You're going into the courtroom thinking, oh, this is going to be bad. But to your delight, you look over there, and your dad is the judge. Wow, this is a good day, okay? He'll go easy on me, right? So he, he looks at the case against you, and he says, he's guilty. You have to pay a lot of money, or you have to go to jail for five years. And you're like, what, Dad? What's that all about? Well, you're guilty. You have to pay the penalty. But you don't have enough money, so they're putting the handcuffs on you. You're going to jail. But right at that time, the judge's son, your brother, comes out, and he pays the price for you. He says, I have the money. I'll pay the price. It's kind of a crude example, but the sin is not something that God says, it's okay, just don't worry about it. No, it has to be dealt with, has to be paid for, and Jesus offers to pay that. He offers to pay that if you will accept that payment. So let's talk, lastly, here about walking in the darkness. We've talked about walking in the light, what that means. What does it mean to walk in the darkness? Unfortunately, there is that opposite side of walking in the light. Walking in the darkness means you're hiding, you're pretending, you're putting on airs, you're attempting to be seen in a certain way, presenting an image that doesn't reflect the inner reality of your heart. In short, walking in the darkness means you're faking it. You're trying to hide your sins, but none are hidden from the one that really matters. It's like you're playing hide-and-seek or peekaboo with a three-year-old. Our granddaughter Lily likes to do that. She puts the blanket over her, and she's, she's hiding, but her feet are sticking out, right? You've all been there. She's not really hidden. Your sins aren't really hidden. You're faking it, but not very well. 
Of course, the good thing about a three-year-old is they like to be found. They want to be found. If you wait too long, right, they, they like being found, and they'll start giggling or something to make sure you can find them. Uh, maybe that's what the Bible means. We should be like a little child. We, we should let God find us. Let his light be in all of the spots. Or maybe it's like you, you stepped in dog poop. This is another example. Okay, you're walking around, you're like, oh boy, I know it's somewhere. I can't see it, but it's not hidden very well. Everybody around you can tell you stepped in dog poop. Okay, that's what it's like when you're trying to fake it. Darkness is, walking in the darkness then has these points. It has love for the world. Chapter 2, 15 says, do not love the world nor the things it offers For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. James 4.4 also says it this way, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? James warned believers not to cultivate a lifestyle that resembles friendship with the world. We must never pursue the ideals, morals, goals, or purposes of the world, but instead we should seek First, God's kingdom and his righteousness from Matthew 6, 33. Do you know, how do you know if you're loving the world? Let me give you some examples to think about. You have time for the internet and the news, but you don't have time to read God's word. Your thoughts are consumed with worldly things. What are your last thoughts at night or your first thoughts in the morning? You talk about the world news, but never the good news. You're discontent with the abilities and possessions God has entrusted you with. You have stuff you're not willing to part with. You're jealous of other people. You pride yourself in earthly distinctions. You're afraid to die. Living in darkness is, number one, a love for the world systems. It's number two, it's hating your brother. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 9 says clearly that if you hate your fellow Christian family member, you are walking in darkness. Number three is a denying that you have sin. This is the ultimate pride. You might say, I'm the only one around who doesn't commit any sins. It's amazing. You can see them in others. Don't deny that you have sin. It's evil to deny that you need a Savior. Number four, denying that Jesus is the Christ. See, Satan's not creative. He only has three plays repeated over and over from the very beginning of time. And it's these outlined in chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For all this is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those are the things that Satan uses us to keep us from recognizing that Jesus is the Christ. He says things like, don't worry about it. God's not telling the truth, kind of like he told Eve. It's okay. It'll make you happy. You deserve it. Everybody's doing it. You don't really have to answer to God. He's not your boss. You are. All that matters is that you're happy. So in conclusion, what do we do about it? How do we know if we're walking in the light? First uh, John 1 4 says this We write this to make my joy, or it can be translated your joy, complete. 
See, joy is what we should have as a Christian walking in the light. Walking in the light is walking in peace, security, and joy. Who doesn't want those things? And the good news is that the loving creator allows you only to decide, um, allows you and only you to decide if you will live in the light or the darkness. He lets you decide. How loving is that? You see, Jesus is not just a get out of hell or get to heaven card that you want to wait to play until the last second so you can have fun here and then avoid hell. No, no, no. Jesus is the source of joy. Joy is so much better than happiness and peace in this life. Joy and peace both now and forevermore. Trust me, you want to get the maximum time to live in the light that your joy may be complete. You see, the world says happiness, happiness, happiness. That's what it's all about, and we read that earlier. Put yourself first. Jesus says joy, joy, joy is available without discrimination. S.D. Gordon says this, joy is distinctly a Christian word. Have you ever thought about that? And a Christian thing. It's the reverse of happiness. It's not happiness to, a, to another level. It's the reverse of happiness. Happiness is the result of what happens of an agreeable sort. Joy has its springs deep down inside, and that spring never runs dry no matter what happens. Only Jesus gives that joy. If you think of joy in this way, if you're taking notes, put joy as an acronym, J-O-Y. J on the top is Jesus. O in the middle is others. And Y, yourself, is last. We've, we've seen this in these, in these verses that we've read. See, joy is the result of not faking it. Joy is the result of living in the full exposure of the light without worry or rejection. Joy is confessing your sins to a loving Father who does not think less of you. Joy is letting your advocate, Jesus, pay the price for your sins instead of keeping that weight of an unpayable debt on your shoulders. Joy is having Jesus at the top of the pyramid because he is worthy, because he is the Savior, because he is the sustainer of all things and the King. Joy is living and joy is dying. A Christian is never sorry that they died. A Christian has a beautiful and relaxed view of life and death, realizing that both are in the loving hands of their God. So clearly you have two choices this morning. You can choose the happiness formula, and if you do, you'll be groping about in the darkness trying to grab onto anything, anything that might make you happy, and it's going to be a moving target. Or you can choose the joy formula where your path is bright and your destination sure with Jesus at the top of the pyramid. If you find yourself in darkness, know there's no darkness that the light cannot dispel. Have you ever entered a dark room and turned on the light only to realize that the dark was stronger than the light? No, it's never going to happen. It doesn't happen. The light is always stronger than the darkness. Your darkness is not beyond what Jesus can handle. His light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. Now is not the time to fake it or hide it, so let's talk to Jesus about it. Uh, stand with me, and I'll give you a chance to uh, spend a couple of minutes talking to Jesus. If there's anything in your, in your heart that he's revealing you need to confess to him, please do that.
Oh, Lord Jesus, you're amazing. Your light is revealing, but cleansing and soothing. And Lord God, we just thank you that we know that we can have peace that passes all understanding, that we can have assurance of your love, that we can have just the opportunity to love our brothers and sisters here in a way that is amazing. We just thank you, Father, for what you've done for us, and we just pray that as we let you shine your light in our hearts, that we would not be so prideful as to submit to what you're saying to us that we need to do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name.